on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And coming up today, swapping a medical career for one in agriculture. I was practising as a doctor, training as a rehabilitation doctor. Um, That's on pause at the moment, but yeah, working throughout COVID in the healthcare system. A busy few years, so it's nice to do something different and have a different perspective, so that's lovely. And the lengthy process to export Tasmanian seeds to Europe. They trialled Silverado and Harpoon Barley for two years and Silveroso, Lucent as well, for two years. Then they decided they liked it, so then they put it into the Greek trial to get onto the EU list, you also have to trial for a number of years. So, you know, it's a five or six year process, really. Sending local seeds to Greece. It's a saga as long as the journey. That story coming up. And a doctor decides to swap that career for one in agriculture. And that'll be later in the program for you. G'day, Tony, with you on this Tuesday, where we also look at the redevelopment of the old... Uh, pulp mill in the state's northwest, and uh, sorry to swear, but pulp mill, if you're looking for a career in agriculture and you're a student, there is money to help you through that pathway. We'll tell you more in the second half of the program after we check the weather. There's a bit of weather on the way for parts of the state too, so we'll have the latest information for you on that. Also, we'll take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 0438 and first up, more on the wind farm decision from Robins Island. And the owners of Robins Island, the Hammond family, say they were taken by surprise at the decision to allow a wind farm on the island so long as it closes for nearly half a year each year. Chauncey Hammond, one of the three brothers who owns the island, said without the project, the family doesn't get any money. And he says they were more concerned about climate change, particularly because the island itself is so low-lying that protecting their cattle farm from rising sea levels was the reason they came up with the idea more than 20 years ago. Our family history with the island itself dates back to about 1916, where our mother's family owned the island. Um, So we only had three owners. So there was Van Diemen's Land Company, the Holman family and ourselves. And my father bought it on the open market in about 1958. Oh, what did he pay? um, Oh, that's highly secret. Oh, okay. (laughs) No, look, he paid the market value at that time. And then we proceeded to spend the next sort of 30 or 40 years paying it off, to be honest with you. Um, So now we've borrowed a bunch of money and we've developed and and running, you know, about 2,000 breeders of Wagyu, probably some of the best genetics in the country. And, uh, under the Robins Island Wagyu brand. So we've been doing that now sort of since the early 90s. So you've been farming cattle there for a while now. When did the idea to put a wind farm among the cattle come up? That came up sort of early in the 2000s when Hydro Tasmania came around and identified our Robins Island as a site that, that would have that wind characteristics and it made it most unique, probably one of the five or six sites around Tasmania. And so we started having discussions and, and working on it from that point on. So we've been at it, as they say, for a minute. This latest decision came as a bit of a shock to Asen, I know, who came on board with his wind farm about six years ago as UPC. What does that mean for your family? Well, that's a really good question, Megan. And I think people need to put this in perspective. This is the largest private investment in Tasmania's history. Um, it could be, I should say. It's around $1.5 billion of investment, which is what Tasmania needs, because our understanding at the moment is that hydro doesn't have 
the additional generation capacity for such things as hydrogens or e-fuels. Um, from us as a family, look, it doesn't interfere with our cattle operation, which obviously is key for us or we would have never signed up. And it's also really important from a climate change perspective because, you know, our island is low-lying. And with climate change and, and the potential for oceans to increase, um, it could very much affect our island. So we're all about, and have been since the early 2000s, about looking at how we can contribute towards, uh, you know, helping mitigate climate change. What's it been like being kind of at the centre of something that, you know, not everyone thinks about it, but wind farms can be quite divisive topics? Yeah, look, and we understand that. But at this stage, um, you know, we need every available good renewable resource. So this isn't something where we can say, well, let's just stop renewable energy because, you know, we don't like it. There has to be a reason for it. It all comes back to evidence and science. And and certainly we understand people's views might be affected, but, you know, 15 kilometres from where we are, there's Woolnorths wind farms, which the turbines spin and have been since the early 2000s. One of the main points that came out of this, one of the main conditions from the EPA on their approval of this project was hinged on the orange-bellied parrot. Was that surprising? Oh, gosh, Meg. I, I think surprising is an understatement. We really kind of find it, as landowners, we find it unfathomable, let alone as, as you know, the developers in ACN. And, look, the department does what it does. We respect that. But for five years, not a single time was this condition mentioned. It wasn't even brought up. So at the 11th hour, all of a sudden, they talk about shutting down the whole wind farm for five months of the year with what we can't see as any further scientific evidence to substantiate that mitigation matter. Then you say to yourself, okay, well, why hasn't over the last 20 years, why hasn't the EPA and the and the government done more research to determine the migratory patterns. If there's so little information known, this has been going on for a long time. And the OBP National Recovery Plan talks about barriers to migration and movement, which is where wind farms and, and turbines themselves are, are classified. And they say the evidence for the impact is weak and the risk rating is moderate. So how do you apply a sledgehammer to crack a walnut? by saying you have to shut it down when you have weak evidence and a risk rating that's moderate. And our view is the bottom line is if we don't use every available re- renewable resource, including like really high uh, efficient and high capacity sites like Robbins Island with low environmental impact from what we can see from the actual science, our planet, we're just going to sit back and watch the planet cook when hundreds if not thousands of theses are going to become extinct. So more surveys are done and it is found that these wind far- this wind farm is directly in the path of their migratory pattern at some point. They, you know, they, they fly in different spots each year. What happens then? Well, that's the beauty of what ACN had put in the development plan is it's an adaptive management. So there would be studies done every day. There would be studies done every migration period. There would be a radio, extensive radio tracking which showed where they were going. One's only ever been seen, and that was back in 2003, 2004. There's absolutely no evidence at this stage that they do fly over. And if they did, what they would do, and which UPC is already, sorry, ACN's already offered, is they would be shutting down those turbines in those areas where they were seen until they've moved away. The EPA has based their decision on the department saying there is a likelihood they fly over the island during migration. They haven't provided any evidence. 
the thing with endangered species is it's it's often complex the causes of their decline a multitude of factors perhaps their migratory species developments in Victoria could also be contributing is it unfair to target this one development well that's a really good question and, and we look at uh, you know there are other wind farms on the west coast and so then you have to say well really with those other wind farms if it's such a a, a risk for Robins Island shouldn't they be issued environmental protection notices to shut down during the same period. And they've been studying those at at some of those other wind farms for 10 years and not have they had one strike. So there's a lot of evidence to say that they they aren't, um, there is no strike or or deaths from wind farms. It's very unfair for this site in particular. Um, Certainly, we know they do move up the northwest. Um, What we do find really amazing is that they haven't done more work over the last 20 or 30 years to understand this. Chauncey Hammond, one of three Hammond brothers that own and run Wagyu Beef on Robins Island, telling Meg Powell the wind farm has been first floated more than 20 years ago. The EPA has approved the project, but with the condition that it shut down for five months each year. Coming up in just a moment, we'll talk about using cameras in the forest to monitor bushfires. Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. Lord of the Flies. It was 30 boys. No parents were allowed. Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. The island was practically deserted. The United States Marines were using it for artillery practice. But there was an abandoned concrete pineapple factory. That was where we lived. Now... Hear the latest conversations weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Oh four three eight nine double two nine three six is our text line number. You might want to comment on this story. Tasmanian plantation management company SFM says it will continue using cameras to detect bushfires in a plantation in the Derwent Valley after successful trials with the new monitoring system. Managing Director of SFM, Andrew Morgan, says the system known as Forest Watch will be expanded in an ongoing effort to detect bushfires quickly and extinguish them before they spread. So we've just done a... Uh a two-year trial with a group called uh, Working on Fire for smoke detection, fire detection cameras um, in the valley. Um, so we manage Lenner Estate, which was formerly the uh, the Norsey Estate. So most of those pine forests in the Derwent Valley are, are under our management. And obviously, um, they're a pretty valuable resource um, that grow you know, onto 30 years of age. So anything we can do to um, identify fire or smoke and then go and attack those fires quickly uh, makes a lot of sense to us. So the trial was a two-year period. Um, we've now concluded that trial and then have now uh, re-engaged and re-entered into a longer-term contract with Working on Fire to maintain the two camera towers we've got with a view to uh, expanding the network to at least another two camera stations in the next 12 months and, and possibly further uh, more. Okay, so you've extended it. So obviously the trial must have worked well. Just how do the cameras work? So the cameras are sitting on a pole, uh, on a, pole, um, on, on a high point. So I think uh, comms towers or the old um, fire um, towers that are dotted around the place. And they actually work on taking an image and moving around the, the compass and taking, I think it's 12 images um, around 
the uh, the compass bearings, and then the AI piece is comparing that image that's got there back to a a standard image and seeing if there's any change. And so that change may be smoke, and the AI is able to detect whether it thinks it's smoke, and then it pushes to an operation centre, which is currently in Orange in uh, in New South Wales, where those detections are then verified by by human. And what happens after that? Uh, so then they have a list of procedures. So in, in our case, they ring our duty officer uh, and the duty officer then makes a determination of what assets to deploy. And in the case of us, uh, we have a number of ground-based assets as well as a, a helicopter on standby, uh, particularly on, on hot blow-up days. So how long would it take if a camera took a, a photo of, say, some smoke, how long would it take to get that helicopter to the actual location? So we have a, a couple of live uh, live examples of that. So we had a fire at Uxbridge uh, a couple of years ago and we actually had it from detection to putting water onto that fire. It was about 20 minutes. So that's pretty quick. So sometimes if you're talking about a land-based response, you may be an hour or, or an hour and a half by the time that land-based uh, unit can get there. So the detection can happen very quickly. Um, it's reasonably accurate in regards to the location and then as soon as you can get that chopper up, that chopper can, get, can become also a, a point of communication and can verify where the smoke is, and that that, uh, that detection becomes even more accurate in terms of that location. Now, there seems to be a lot of these sort of camera systems coming into the country, a lot of it from uh, from America. Is there a difference with the, the, the cameras and the, um, the software they use? So, in our experience, uh, I guess the, the camera systems themselves don't differ too much. Um, where we're seeing the difference is in terms of the software applications and the response. So, that I guess the customer service that those operation rooms can provide and also the interface. So, we have two interfaces with this system. One is on my iPhone, so I can be looking at uh, looking at the cameras at any point, anywhere, as long as I've got 4G or 5G, 5G coverage, but also I can log on to the web um, and look at it from a website point of view and we also then have a, a reporting platform which helps us um, log the incident and log all the, the uh, assets as we deploy them for a response. And what happens at night time with these cameras? Are they still relevant? Yep, so they still they use FLIR so um, you know, it's, the picture becomes a, a bit of a just black with white specks if, if you see a fire or lights um, but they still do work at night. Uh, and obviously, the value of uh, the forest. You saw this uh, forest you're looking after is what approximately 100 million dollars worth of assets. Yeah, look, it'd be something like that at the moment. Um, if you looked at it per hectare basis, a, a mature pine forest, you know, it could be between 50 and 100 thousand dollars per hectare. So when you look at the uh, the return on on something like this, whilst they're an expensive capital item, um, they pay for themselves pretty quickly. If you can contain a fire to a few hectares and, and that, that's really our response here is around uh, early detection rapid response to, to contain the fire. Um, aerial units aren't going to put a fire out but they will contain it and slow down that spread. Now obviously this sort of system could be put into public forests as well, um, areas where uh, we don't want bushfires, maybe wilderness areas? Yeah, absolutely uh, and we've actually shared the, this resource with uh, various government agencies at the moment and, and uh, invited them to, to test it out and have a look at it with us and we obviously share information to them uh, if we do get detections. And you say it's expensive to set up. How expensive? Look, each install, I think on, from memory, was about thirty to $40,000 um, per camera unit. Um, so again, it's a, there's an initial outlay, but I think the, uh, the payback is, uh, is more, than, more than covers that, that initial capital outlay. And the cost of running the system, there's an ongoing cost there as well? 
there is a cost, yes. But as you say, uh, with uh, something valued at uh, at that amount of money, it's it's well worth it. Yeah, that's right. And and obviously, we're not um, you know the standard or the the, the the past in the past. What we would have been doing is putting people into towers um, at a cost to paying a person manning that tower. And so we're replacing that person in that tower with the camera and that uh, even though you have got a person monitoring, that person in orange is monitoring uh, numerous cameras and not just one um, tower at any one point. So it relies on a a system that's um, obviously connected to the mainland. Are you confident that system won't break down? Yeah, look, we're pretty confident. I mean, it's it's based off the internet. Um, it's you know we we've got uh, we've got uh, redundancies there. There is a view that if we build up enough of a camera network, or if other um, players wish to to come into this network, there would be an operations centre in Tasmania. So that's something we can work towards in the future. And this forest uh, is close by some areas where there are houses. Yeah, so we've got assets in and around Medina. Um, so viewers will be familiar with most of that pine asset up around that area. Um, that is all Lenner Estate. Um, so there's definitely houses there, and then there's houses embedded around the asset around uh, Ellendale and also up the Plenty. So we have got that, um, I guess, forest and semi-urban and rural interface, and there are certainly houses in those areas. That's Managing Director of SFM, Andrew Morgan, on the Forest Watch System, a series of cameras monitoring a huge plantation forest in the Derwent Valley to detect bushfires quickly. Uh, on the text line, Kim from Montague says, if your family care about climate change, why would you even consider a massive industrial wind farm where over 50 epic listed species exist or EPBC listed species at least exist? This wind farm will speed up the extinction of these species on the island. They include wedge-tailed and white-bellied seagulls, disease-free endangered Tassie devils, critically endangered orange-bellied parrots and over 20 species of migratory and residential shorebirds. Thank you for that, Kim. In a moment, sending seeds to Europe. It is a long process. Tune in to Nightlife with Philip Clark and Indira Naidu. Hasn't fallen over yet, so that's good. Does give you an advantage. Thought-provoking discussions to get you through the night. Good to hear from you again. What do you think? It's really been a remarkable thing. Well, how many times do we sit back and watch this happen? From an ethical point of view, is it okay to cheat? (laughs) No. How do they go about it? I've got no idea. I'm not of that persuasion. Nightlife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. Every night from 10pm on ABC Radio. Coast to Coast. This is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, you'd think with the weather we've had lately, we'd hardly have much in common with farming in the Mediterranean or the rest of Europe. But as it turns out, the region is even more climate conscious and farmers there want to grow resilient crops too. Stuart Sutherland from Upper Murray Seeds has been trying to get loosened seeds into Greece for some time and the business recently had a win. Something like loosen is, is very difficult for us to, to um, grow it here and then get it over there at the right price. So what we had to do was um, to sell anything into Europe, in a European country, first the... the company that you're dealing with has to trial it and decide they like it, so it takes one or two years. We do exactly the same thing here at the Upper Area Research Station at Cressy. If we're looking at their material, we'll trial it for two years and then we go, yes, we like it. So they trialled um, Silverado and um, Harpoon Barley for two years um, and Silverosa, Lucent as well, for two years. Then they decide they liked it, so then they put it into the Greek trial plus um, on 
to get onto the EU list, you also have to trial for a number of years. So you know, it's a five or six year process really. To, from the time you decide you meet someone, they decide they like your material, they want to trial it to make sure they 100% want to go through the process, it's about a five to six year. It's like a mating ritual in a way, isn't it? It is ridiculous. Well, the whole conference is a bit like that. We always laugh when we go to the conference, and that's where we met these guys. We met them at the um, International Sea Conference about seven or eight years ago. Literally, there's between 1,000 and 2,000 delegates there. There are masses of small tables that hold about four people. And every half hour, you sit down, and then every half hour, you stand back up again, and the, the noise lifts up in the room. Everyone sort of moves around and sits down with someone else that they've organised a meeting with. So why would a, a loosen and barley variety suit a Greek climate? A Greek climate, right. Well, that's a good question. Um, we operate mostly with our export business. We're operating in southern Europe. So... You know, the backbone behind our material, whether it be a loosen or a pasture, is perennials and deep-rooted and a persistence. So we're talking southern Europe, we're talking Turkey, Greece, France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, those sorts of countries. But then, but loosen, loosen sold all around the world. You know, there's North Africa, Morocco, Algeria, there's a big market into the Middle East... The lucent market is big, and, and what we do well in Australia is produce and export lucent. These countries, do they want diversity in seed? Do they want more seed, just like in Australia? We bring a lot of seed in, or we have done for many decades. Now it's not as freely available. Is that something that everyone's conscious of within the industry? I think what's happening in the industry is, is there are, there's been more and more takeovers by the big corporates, so there's less people to work with now, and people are all looking for a difference, which is getting tougher and tougher. You imagine the big, the big automotive makers, you know, they're dealing in very large numbers of cars, a huge amount of investment, and so we have to keep up with those guys. So what we do is, is you know, we've got like-minded companies in different parts of the world. We work with about six or seven different countries very closely, and that's how we do that, by, by all getting together and sharing our resources. So we're, we're working with a company in Portugal, for example, and they're working on some legumes that we're not working on here. But we're working on some legumes that they're not working on, so we'll, we'll cross over. So they're trialling our stuff and we're trialling theirs. And that's the way we're... We're moving, and it works well because there's still lots and lots of family businesses and smaller businesses that that are working internationally. What are some of the take-homes you had from this recent seed conference in Europe? Oh, well, the big thing, of course, everyone was talking about the Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, which which was very sad. Of course, when you're over there, you're feeling very close to it, and it's and where we've dropped behind a bit in the newspapers, it's still headlines there every day. So massive cost price pressures they're under and distribution problems are getting seed around. You know, the whole gas price and the cost of power is enormous over there. They've got supply challenges. Like, we've got challenges in Australia. There's a, there's a twofold. You know, they've got twice as many problems as we have. Um, and, of course, climate change. Everybody's talking climate change. And, and, and regulation. Governments are now starting to regulate. So, for example, you know, in Europe there's times... there's, there's Things like nitrogen, you know, they can only put so much nitrogen out. New, New Zealand's going the same way. Everyone's talking about methane. Are they going to tax cattle? What it produces? You know, what are we going to do? So everyone's heading in this direction. And I must admit, we've been targeting our program for a few years now around looking at varieties that will potentially have lower methane emission levels. 
So that's what, that's what we're looking to do. And how many years off? Gosh, well, we've been working with the company very closely in Europe on this for some time. I reckon we're getting close. We, what we have to do now, we think we've, actually, we think we've got it. We now have to prove it. And I think that's a, a three or four year job, which, which we will be doing, hopefully, um, with the Tasmanian government is, is the plan. We, we've, got to get, we've got to convince them that it's something that they should invest in and uh, help us fund. Because I think, I think it's going to be really, really important. If we don't, if we don't get ahead of this, um, it'll get ahead of us, and farmers in Australia will be told what they're doing. We need, to be, we need to be on the forefront and make sure that we've still got a viable beef industry in years to come. Are there other companies in Europe going down this path of producing grass seed that, uh, that will lower methane? Well, it's not really grass seed. It's different species, so there's a number of them. And, and here today at the, at the research farm, you would have heard um, Eric Hall talk about tallish clover and things like that, which, which do have lower levels or will pr- produce lower levels. No, there's a lot of talk, and there are, yes, there are some companies in some countries doing work, but we're still a few years away yet from that happening. There's been a lot of work on the seaweed end, but once you start understanding it, in, in that end, there's also a lot of work on different additives that, that um, you can put down a cow's throat, and I think we'll find that there's a lot more to come out in this space yet. Because the challenge with seaweed is distribution, how do you get the right amount to feed it to a lot of cattle across a lot of acreage, but with pasture or legumes, it's, you just whack it in the ground and they eat it wherever they are. Well, exactly. And, and look, I'm, I've, been, I've been really interested in this subject for some time, hence our breeding program heading in that direction. I believe it's going to be a combination. Um, seaweed will figure in there somehow, whether it's a pill or a tablet or a capsule, something long outlasting like a bloat capsule, what it's going to be, I mean, I think there's still a lot of work to be done there yet, but I believe it'll be a combination of that along with selected species that go into the pasture mix which are guaranteed to lower um, emissions. I think if we can, but we've got to sort out which ones they are. There's a lot of work being done at the moment and... Um, there's, there's a lot of thought process around it, but actual fact, proving it is the next step. We, we think we're there, but we have to prove it. That's going to take four or five years of very expensive work. Stuart Sutherland from Upper Murray Seeds at Cressy talking to Larissa Smith about exporting loose-end seed varieties to Europe and to Greece in particular. Coming up on the country are lots of WA lobsters bound for Tasmania and the doctor who's swapped a medical career for a career in agriculture. Plus, we'll check the latest on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Michael Dallafontana. Thank you, Tony. Police in the Bahamas have arrested former FTX boss Sam Bankman-Fried. The country's Attorney-General says they've received a formal notification from the US of undisclosed criminal charges against him. FTX, which had been one of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchanges, filed for bankruptcy protection last month, and Mr Bankman-Fried resigned as Chief Executive Officer that same day. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission has launched court action against 11 current and former officers of the Star Entertainment Group. Climate change will be central to talks between the President of Palau and a bipartisan delegation to the Pacific. Foreign Minister Penny Wong, Minister for the Pacific Pat Conroy and their opposite numbers Michael McCormack and Simon Birmingham spent the day in Vanuatu yesterday and will also meet officials in the Federated States of Micronesia. 
And two songwriters have dropped a lawsuit alleging Taylor Swift copied their lyrics in her 2014 number one hit, Shake It Off. Swift told the court in August that she'd never heard Hall and Butler's song Players Gonna Play and Haters Gonna Hate before writing Shake It Off and claimed the phrases were used commonly to express the idea that one can or should shrug off negativity. More news at one o'clock. Exactly. Tay-Tay wouldn't do that, would she? Luke Johnston from the Bureau. We'll talk to Luke. We'll talk to Luke in just a moment. Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. Lord of the Flies. It was 30 boys. No parents were allowed. Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. The island was practically deserted. The United States Marines were using it for artillery practice. But there was an abandoned concrete pineapple factory. That was where we lived. Now, action. Hear the latest conversations weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. You there, Luke? Just having a slight problem with our phone situation. We'll get to Luke Johnston and the Bureau in just a moment. But Australia's biggest lobster company is about to distribute their catch to supermarkets around the country, including Tasmania, in time for Christmas. Geraldton Fisherman's Cooperative CEO Matt Rudder says their freshly upgraded cookers are working around the clock to send over a million crayfish across Australia in the coming days. It is um, extremely busy for us, as it is every year at the moment. So the whites have just started running about a week ago and um, we're now full pelt producing as much product as we can for the Aussie market. That's excellent timing because the whites, they weren't running and things, you weren't getting a lot of product coming in, were you? No, we were. That's one of the beauties of um, a wild-caught fishery. You just never know what they're going to do and everyone had their theories about when they would start running and, of course, half of them were wrong. Um, but it was slightly late this year for whatever reason, so it's put the pressure on to get the product out, um, and particularly over to east, over to the eastern states markets where um, the logistics challenges are, are a bit of a concern. But we so far we're going okay. So when you say you're you're flat out, can you just give me a run through of what is is happening? They're coming into you. What do you then do? Yeah, so they come in over a thousand kilometres of um, coastline. We have landing points up and down the coast across the breadth of the fishery. And the majority of it at this time of the year funnels down into our Fremantle frozen processing facility, which we've recently upgraded. Um, and that processing facility is running 16 hours a day at the moment. We've got an inline cooker, which can cook two, out, two tonnes um, an hour. And we have an army of staff down there cooking, wrapping, packing and um, and sending product off to market. So it's a really busy time of the year. We'll, we'll probably send off around about 1.1 to 1.2 million crays um, over the next um, few weeks into, into Aussie homes and onto Christmas tables. And into supermarkets, is it Coles and, and Woolies that are, ma- are the main distributors for them? Yeah, so we we sell into Woolies and we also sell into a number of the independent supermarkets, um, grocery stores as far north as north north um, eastern Queensland. We're in stores up and down the east coast and around the country, which is great. And how are you going getting that product into those markets? Because there is such a, a minefield of logistics getting product out of WA at the moment. Are you air freighting that out or how does that work? 
Yeah, so we're going, uh, we're using uh, various means. We are using some air freight. Um, the majority of it's still going out on truck, um, but we have had to adjust some of our processing and some of our processes and outturning direct from the factory and those sorts of things just to minimise um, the time that the product's in WA. But yeah, it's certainly been a, it's been a challenge, but at this stage, um, it's great now that the whites are running. We, we're going full pelt and, and loading up trucks and sending them east as quick as we can. And how is demand, Matt? Because I notice some of the supermarkets are still selling uh, what looks like imported crayfish. It's certainly not Western Rock Lobster. So you're up against those cheaper imported products in some settings. How do you, you go with that demand? Yeah, so it's, uh, we're still seeing reasonable demand because I think, and particularly now with our product and the inline cooking it's, um, and steam cooking, it's by far and away the premium product in the market. Um, but we do see, in fact, I was just in Coles, I think, the other day and saw um, what looked like North American lobster branded as Western Australian rock lobster, which was a concern. So it is a concern, but I think the main thing is that um, that the consumers understand where the products come from and that it's accurately labelled. Um, and it's one of the challenges that we have in seafood more generally, I think, is um, is people knowing where the product comes from. It's quite a change for the co-op, isn't it? Because pre-2020 with COVID and then the China market shutdown, the business was almost entirely aimed at live craze and having holding facilities to keep the lives in tip-top condition. So how much of a change has this been to then be focused on, in some regards, processing for the domestic market? I know you're still doing lives, but this domestic market is still taking up quite a bit of attention now. Yeah, so we're a much more diversified company now than, than three years ago, or diversified markets, I should say, than three years ago. Um, so we have now the two major processing facilities in Perth being in Fremantle for Frozen and our live export out of Welshpool. And both of them are actually still going strong. So even though we're still um, doing a lot through Frozen at this time of the, of the year, we're also still exporting significant volumes live into um, into global markets. Um, and I think as of today, we're, we're exporting to over 20 global um, or 20 countries around the world um, in various product forms. So, yeah, certainly very different. And that creates a whole heap of challenges, you know, having two major workforces um not only for live but frozen, and that's been another challenge this year. But it's uh, the team's done a fantastic job, and we've got a we've got an army of new employees um, across the business helping us to move the product out. And I think you said you've got a, a new cooker or a fairly new cooker that can do two tons an hour. So I imagine yeah. the investment into that domestic side of things has been quite significant. Yeah, no, it has been significant. So um, and the inline cooker is it's all been designed in-house and built locally as well, which is fantastic. And it's it's um, producing an absolutely premium product now, which we're really happy with. Um, but it has certainly been a big investment. But I think it's a, it's, it's a good investment, which will pay off over multiple years. I mean, it's once you've got that sort of infrastructure and that sort of capacity, it'll, um, it'll pay off for years for our members. Now it's about looking at what other opportunities we've got to further value add on top of that. So um, we're now doing split and cleans, both cooked and raw for, uh, for the local food service market, which makes it a lot easier to use the product for food service. 
Um, and we're also looking at, at retail options um, of similar types of home use, easy, easy use um, product forms. So, yeah, I think it's quite exciting to think about where we can go to from now that we've got um, that base capacity sorted. Yeah. And how much of the, the total catch would you say is going to these domestic markets? I think uh, all up just over 6,500 tonnes of lobster comes in. Yep. Uh, how much is going to the domestic now? Yeah, it's hard to say, but I'd say probably somewhere around one to one and a half million kilos uh, going into the domestic market. But certainly, you know, at this time of the year is where the vast majority of that comes from. Um, we tend to find that Christmas is is the one big time where there's a lot of demand in summer and then a small little spike at Easter. But aside from that, um, consumption um, it flattens out, but we're certainly, you know, and at this price point, and particularly if we can come up with some more innovative home use products, um, we think that there's really good opportunity for the for the local market to increase consumption across the year. That's Geraldine Fisherman's Cooperative CEO Matt Rudder speaking to Joe Prendergast about their plans to send over a million crayfish to supermarkets across the country, including Tasmania, in the coming days, and lots of uh, crayfish. Uh, Luke Johnston from the Bureau, what do you reckon? Oh, I, I mean, sure. I mean, how, how how small are they, though? Well, probably up to a kilo, I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess when you think about it, a kilo, it's, it's pretty big, though, isn't it? What really? do you say, a million and a half kilos? So that tells me it's a million and a half lobsters. That's a lot. Anyway. I guess it's an easy way to count them, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how the local lobster uh, uh, farmers feel about it. But anyway, it happens every year, so... Uh, I suppose competition is competition, isn't it? Mm, mm. Now, let's talk about the weather, the rainfall. Is there uh, much yeah, of it? Yeah, that's, that's right. When you crossed me before, there was a bit of a, a blank space, but yeah. we'll, we'll shake it off. We'll shake it there's off. No, there's no bad blood. Uh, don't don't blame me, Tony. <laughs> you, you belong. Gee. I'm just, just reading out Taylor Swift songs. Jesus, Swift with the puns. Oh, no, I, I had uh, well, I had a bit of a, a seven-minute news uh, or story to, to sort of plan this sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, on to, on to rain. So uh, some bit of an unsettled day today. Showery conditions extending across the state with a, a cold front uh, crossing the state at the moment. Uh, coming from the northwest, it hasn't made it to the southeast yet, though. Uh, the 24-hour rainfall totals to 9am. It was pretty wet yesterday. Uh, Launceston had 17 millimetres, uh, sort of large drop thunderstorm type things. There were quite a few thunderstorms about the north and northeast yesterday afternoon. Highest rainfall was on the west coast at Lake Margaret with 47 millimetres. Hobart uh, only had around three and a half millimetres uh, yesterday. Since 9am today, we've started to see the showers uh, mostly about the northwest. Uh, the highest is uh, the west coast. It's drawn up to seven millimetres. And for the rest of today, we'll see those showers continue to extend uh, statewide. We're likely to see some thunderstorms uh, develop uh, a bit more extensively than they have so far this afternoon uh, about the northern and eastern halves of the state. A bit more of a focus in the southeast, so you might hear uh, the old rumble of thunder in the coming hours in the southeast and uh, also parts of the, the northeast and, and northwest uh, as well. Uh, later on tonight, there uh, will be a subtly change coming up from the south uh, behind all this thunderstormy action. Uh, be quite a brisk subtly change. Uh, will increase shower activity and make things quite wet. So Hobart's looking at receiving somewhere in the range of 20 to 30 millimetres of rain. There'll be a bit more on southern and southeastern facing slopes as the, the wind sort of brings the precipitation into the land. So it, it could be quite a, quite, a wet, uh, quite a wet evening with as much as 30 to 45 millimetres possible uh, in the next 20, well, 
12 to 18 hours about uh, the Midlands or Southern Midlands and parts of the East Coast, so fairly wet. Okay. Um, what are we looking at after that, Luke? Well, once this weather clears away, it's going to be pretty consistent weather, uh, but not warm. Uh, it's going to be fairly cold. Temperatures will likely stay below 14 or 15 degrees for four or three or four days uh, into the southeast, which is about four or five degrees or six degrees below the December average, so a bit of a chilly uh, break. In terms of weather for the coming days, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday is all looking fairly similar, but a slow easing trend with showers about the eastern and southern halves of the state. So going to get a lot of shelter and uh, drier skies up into the northwest and uh, even the central north in Launceston will be sheltered from most of it. So if you don't want rainfall, go to the northwest. If you want rainfall, I guess, stay in the east and south. Okay. Warnings, what have we got? Warning-wise, uh, today and tomorrow we've got a sheep grazers warning for the Midlands and South East Districts. Today we have a strong wind warning for all coastal waters apart from the Lower East Coast and the South West Coast. Tomorrow a gale warning for east of uh, Flinders Island and the Upper East Coast for southerly winds and a strong wind warning for all remaining coastal waters and all South East inshore waters. Out on the water, at the moment we've got westerly winds 20 to 30 knots, although starting to shift a bit more southerly uh, 10 to 20 knots in the south. Uh, sh shifting, sorry, shifting southerly 20 to 30 knots in the south this evening. Uh, this swell, we've got a west to southwesterly, two to three metres, tending southwesterly, three to four metres in the evening. Through Bass Strait, we've got a westerly swell, one and a half to two and a half metres, and the east coast today has got a northeasterly swell below one metre, as well as a southerly below one metre as well. Okay. I'll leave you with this thought. Mal on the text line says, Hi, Tony. The good thing about heavy rainstorms when you're driving when you're driving is that it clears all the bugs off the front of your car. I guess, oh, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it doesn't do wonders for the visibility. Storms <laughs> like what... what uh, I mean, areas in Kingston yesterday had some decent storms and Launceston had decent storms as well. With You know those big, heavy raindrops? Mm. Yeah, whenever I, do. I Whenever I see those, I always think of in Forrest Gump when he's in Vietnam and he's describing the, the big old fat raindrops. Yeah. Yeah. I'll leave you with that thought. Thanks, Luke. Not, Talk not next quite time. A love story. Beautiful. Uh, but, you know, I know. what you make me do. See you, Luke. Thanks, Tony. Luke Johnston from the Bureau, always with some amazing thoughts from left field, centre field, and, and right field. Now, have you ever thought about a career change which involves working with family? Might be some fireworks, perhaps, but it happens a lot in the rural industry and on the farm. On Tasmania's east coast at Little Swanport, medical doctor Ellie Dunbabin has paused her career in health to join the family farm. Fiona Breen caught up with the new farmer and her dad, Bruce Dunbabin, at Mayfield Estate to quiz them about working together, but also this year's season in the vineyard. 2022, this season is an interesting season, Fiona. We have got one of our wettest years ever, a best, probably one of the best years on the farm. The vineyard is suffering a little bit, to be perfectly honest. It's a little bit sulky, a little bit too damp, if I'm being brutally honest, um, but the rest of the farm is going beautifully. I might um, bring in your daughter here. Ellie has come back to the property as well. Yeah, it's been great coming back. And so what are you involved in in the farm? Bit of everything or...? Yeah, just starting out, we call it our, my orientation year, but essentially getting an overview of everything at the moment. So doing a bit of sheep work, working the vines and the cellar door on the weekends. So, yeah, getting an overall 
education. <laughs> and Bruce, what's it like to have your daughter here with you? It's exciting. It's really, really nice to um, to have you know someone back here on the farm. Um, Ellie rang me from Queensland probably February last year and said she was thinking of coming home and I said yeah that'd be great thinking it was for a week or two holiday but uh, it's turned into something more than that so that is uh, tremendous it's a great result. Well Ellie Dunbabin tell me was that a COVID decision that made you think about coming home? Oh well Fiona it's hard to say I think there was lots of things contributing to it but it's I mean you can see sitting here with the view and being on such a beautiful property it always had a bit of a magnet effect um, and good people in this community so working throughout Queensland you know I would have had a bit of a calling to come back so it was an easy decision in the end. What were you doing in Queensland? Um, I was practicing as a doctor training as a rehabilitation doctor Um, that's on pause at the moment but yeah working throughout COVID in the healthcare system so pretty tough yeah it definitely was a a busy few years so it's nice to do something different and have a different perspective so that's lovely so you've been in the vineyard today yep yep just working on this Cillador vineyard today but lifting wires yesterday on our main block So some quick learning for you. I mean, you've grown up with it, but sort of actually working in it, is it a bit different? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I find Dad having only done sheep when I was little, the vineyard's a whole new level, but I am finding some crossover between the medical world and the farming world, so that's good. Really in the science? Yeah, definitely in the biology, um, you know, or the funguses and all the plant. Oh, that doesn't sound good, actually. <laughs> all the funguses, but interesting. Yeah, that's it. And that plant anatomy, you know, is only a hop, skip and a jump away. So now we'll head back to sheep and merinos. Tell me about your flock at the moment. So after 2018-19, the, the couple of really dry years there, we've been able to manage to build our flock again up to just on 10,000. So we're a super fine merino flock. So we kind of target that Italian market. They're the guys that have really high specs and generally we can hit those high specs. So that's a pretty lucrative market if you can get those high specs. We have had a contract with Raider, an Italian company. They're taking a deep breath at the moment after COVID, but uh, we're certainly still in contact with those guys. But we're still producing some fine wool on Mayfield. There's no doubt about that. The, the grapes haven't taken over yet. So if you're not contracting with Raider at the moment, how are you selling that, that fine wool? So that will go into the market. We finished shearing last month, finished the weathers. So we generally put all our wool up pretty much uh, lock, stock and barrel in February. The February-March period was traditionally the super fine selling period, so we've, we've stuck with that. So we will uh, have quite a few bales for sale in the new year. And where do you think they will make their way? Have you had any word that they'll still sort of end up in Italy somehow? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we're still corresponding with those guys and they're still very active in the market, there's no doubt about that. Um, although they haven't got any contracts at the moment, they're purchasing purchasing as much wool as as they ever did, uh, probably a little bit more to be honest. So they've come out of COVID pretty well. They've swung into uh, leisure wear, ski wear, winter wear apparel, as well as their, their fine Italian men's suiting as well. Any of the other international companies sniffing around? 
yeah, there, there is, absolutely. There's interest from Europe, uh, no doubt about that. We'll tend to put it in the market at this point in time and let the market decide the value of it. Things have not been going so well the last month or so for fine wool. It's not traditionally the fine wool selling season, so there's not a lot of good wool around. Good wool is still holding up, I believe. So we'll pop it in the market and see what uh, see what we can get for it in Feb. Okay, Ellie, are you involved in the sheep side? Uh, what are your thoughts about working with the livestock? Yeah, no, it's really good. It's definitely something that's um, been great to get involved with. You know, we were involved with shearing this year. Um, I know our wool class from years back and we will try and get over to the wool sales in Feb over in Melbourne. So just to get a bit of an idea on how it all works, um, it's been great meeting all the people around this area as well involved in the wool industry and the guys that dad works closely with so learning a lot from all of those people and it d- does feel familiar <laughs> so how are dad and daughter getting on in the work in the work sense luckily i still have the votes at the moment <laughs> so uh i still have presiding vote but look it's been it's been lovely and uh we're only a few weeks in so it should be right at this stage mm-hmm. too yeah, check back in. No, no, it's going really well. I think um, we've got good open communication, so that's key. And Dad's a really great teacher um, and very patient with the uh, practical challenges that I have come across so far. But no major, no major mistakes yet. What's one of the, the bigger practical challenges that you've had to overcome? Oh, well, I suppose working with machinery and working just I suppose every day you learn a thousand new things I think lots of little steps um, to get one thing done and I think the patience involved in that from Bruce's side is going well. <laughs> it's Ellie Dunbabin and her dad Bruce in the Mayfield Estate Farm at Little Swanport where sheep and vines mix it together. Ellie swapped a medical career for a career on the farm for the time being. Talking there to Fiona Breen. On the text line, Roger says, fantastic that EPA are finally working to protect the environment. Thank you for that, Roger. Uh, and Dave from Lynn, g'day Dave, says, minimum size for Western Rock lobster, 76 mil. Tassie Southerns are 105 to 120 mil, depending on the zone. Thanks for that, uh, Dave. Now, if you're a uni student committed to a career in agriculture, applications are now open for the 2023 AgriFutures Horizon Scholarship Program. Recipients receive $10,000 over two years and the opportunity to network with the brightest minds in agriculture. It's open to all sorts of students. Industry is facing a skills shortage. Scholarship recipient Lachlan Bryant told Jennifer Nichols the opportunities are incredible. I'm a 19-year-old uni student. I've just completed my second year at the University of Queensland based out of Gatton campus um, and I'm studying agricultural science, majoring in agronomy, uh, which is soil and plant science people that don't know what agronomy is. I'm off a farm in the Sunshine Coast hinterland, a dairy and poultry farm, which my mum is currently working, but it's third generation. So it's uh, kind of in my blood, you could say. But yeah, I'm really passionate about agriculture and making a difference for farmers into the future. And that's why I'm studying ag. And I got involved in the AgriFutures program because I'm a uni student and I, if I'm to be honest, really appreciated the money. But what I've gotten out of it um, was probably a lot more in their professional development programs and and that kind of thing. So that's something that AgriFutures is really, really good for. It's a $10,000 bursary, isn't it? So that's nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's a $10,000 bursary, but on top of that, you also get um, a placement with um, your sponsor. So I'm sponsored by Grains and Research Development Corporation, 
it's a two-year program and every year you get a two-week placement, but you also get the opportunity to go down to uh, the Have a Horizon conference. Everyone from AgriFutures meets together and then part of that is all of the scholars go down there and we do a professional development program with them, which sounds weird, but the scholarship program has given me a lot more opportunity through the networking and conferences and that kind of thing than the money has. Um, there's a lot of scholarship programs out there that can give you money and, and it's really appreciated. But yeah, to be able to actually grow and connect and learn is really valuable. How do your peers that you went to school with view what you're doing now? <laughs> I think um, agriculture's got quite a, a negative uh, negative view. <laughs> I was always given a bit of a hard time for not doing a real science when I studied agricultural science, even though it's, you know, I study just the same subjects as anyone else doing, so, you know, I study a lot of the uh, UQ science subjects that are relevant across the board. Um, so I don't think I probably got as much respect for what I was studying until I realized how much money there is in these scholarships and that kind of thing, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, really? It's, yeah, it's, I don't know, people think that agriculture is a bit of a, a dumb, not very smart industry to be in, even though it's got some really amazing minds out there and, yeah, lots of development, lots of opportunity. And young people with skills are so desperately needed. I was just looking at some of these statistics that the average age of an agricultural worker is 51, which is 10 years higher than the national average. And in 2022, there are over 5,000 entry-level positions across the agricultural industry with only 800 to 900 graduating students to fill them. Which is, yeah. <laughs> so the job prospects are quite huge for you. Absolutely, yeah. And that's when we went there to the last AgriFutures conference. Yeah, they're just screaming out for people. You know, they're already offering positions um, Yeah, because they just want us really badly. And I think that that's agriculture as a whole. You know, if, if you want to work in an industry that's got a lot of funding at the moment, <laughs> agriculture is ready to boom. Um, and AgriFutures is not the only scholarship that's out there at the moment. I would argue, you know, talking to people that agriculture has the most scholarships out of any industry out there. And I don't think a lot of people realise either how relevant it is to everyone. In the AgriFutures program, there's, you know, there's a very broad range of people. There's food scientists that are in the program. There are engineers, people studying marine biology. Um, so it's not just, you know, the agricultural science students that have got this opportunity. It's a really, really broad range of people. Um, and that's the great thing about agriculture is that you can be an engineer. You can be pretty much anything because it's such a broad industry. And if you had computer skills, you'd be in high demand too, working out things like logistics, programming. Absolutely. Yeah, no, all of these things. And that's what the, that's what the AgriFuture scholarships, it's moving towards too. Um, you know, so anyone can apply if you've got an interest in the agricultural industry and you want to apply your studies to that. Lachlan Bryan, an AgriFutures Horizon Scholarship recipient and Ag Science student, talking there to Jen Nichols, ending the Country Hour for today. Don't forget ABC Rural Online and our Facebook page. That's our Country Hour for today. We'll catch you after midday tomorrow.